realize that there is a spiritual conflict happening over the souls of men, and there's a conflict happening over our soul. Father, we pray tonight that you will awaken us, that they will become a deepened appreciation for those who have paid an enormous price so that we can experience this gift called freedom. We pray tonight, Father, that we will become alert, awakened, vigilant, and understand what our responsibility is in light of this amazing privilege of freedom, that we will take our responsibility seriously and that we will engage in our culture in such an amazing way, Father, that we can continue to secure the freedom that we have enjoyed so that our children and our grandchildren can live in the benefit of this amazing freedom that we're experiencing. And Lord, I pray tonight that each one of us will hear your Spirit speaking into our innermost being. We'll hear you collectively, but help us to hear you on an individual level, that you'll speak in the areas in our soul that we recognize, you know what? This is my calling. This is my area of responsibility. May we hear very clearly from your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, many of us uh, are well acquainted with C.S. Lewis. How many have heard of his name? Uh, if you read some of the books, you know, he's written good theological books. He's written children's books. Uh, movies have been made, you know, Chronicles of Narnia. How many have ever heard of the Chronicles of Narnia? Anybody seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Let me just recap a little bit. Uh, it's kind of a classic story. Lewis actually lived during the Second World War. He was uh, a, a scholar at Oxford and uh, he lived during the terror of the Nazis bombing London. Can you just imagine what it would be like every night waiting to hear sirens, bombs falling on you, living with that incredible apprehension? You just never know what would happen. You know, total homes were destroyed, people were killed. Um, and so many of the people in London actually sent their children away out of the city for their protection. Some of them sent them even to Canada. And some of them sent him to the countryside. In in the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, of course, it's a fantasy. But Lewis is trying to communicate to children the understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he sends, uh, in the story, there's these four children who head out to the countryside. And they go to live in a professor's home. And when they go there, big old mansion, they're exploring. And you know how kids are. They find this old wardrobe. And uh, the next thing you know, they walk through the wardrobe. And boom, they're in a whole fantasy world called Narnia. And Narnia uh, is a mystical land, and there's a white witch who's holding the country in her wicked spell. And how many know what the spell is? It's always winter. Can anybody relate to that as Canadians? I mean, we should be able to identify with the story, right? And so they're in Narnia, and Edmund, one of the children, uh, he's, you know, he's being seduced by the lies of the white witch. And I think that we can see kind of a, a parallelism here, you know, how the enemy seduces us with lies, and we begin to believe these lies. And so one of the things she promises Edmund is a position in her kingdom if he will bring his siblings to her court. And though he succumbs to her tempting offer, he fails to fulfill her request, and he's imprisoned in the palace, and eventually he's rescued and he's brought under the care of Aslan, which is this huge lion, and uh, we recognize it's an allegory, right? And the lion is, of course, the person of Jesus. And Aslan is this physical lion in the story. And he's, um, he's, in, this, he's in this story, and now he's, he's, he's got 
uh, Edmund under his care, but the witch comes and appeals for his blood. And she stands before Aslan and all all the villagers and, of course, his siblings, and she says to Aslan, You have a traitor in your midst. And he responds, His offense is not against you. She says, Have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built? And Aslan growls his answer out. He says, Don't cite me the magic to me, the deep magic witch. I was there when it was written. Well, then you'll remember, she says, that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. Of course, Peter, the elder brother, unsheaths his sword and he goes, You know, just come and try to get my brother, right? He wants to defend him. And she says, Do you really think the mere force will deny me my right, little king? I love that. You know, what's, what's uh, Lewis trying to tell us? That as children of God, we're all kings and priests. And so all of these children are noted as, as being kings. And she says, Aslan knows that unless I have the blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That boy will die upon the stone tablet as is in our tradition, and you dare not refuse me. Enough, growls Aslan. I shall talk with you alone. And if you've seen the movie, you see the big lion, you know, moving towards the tent and the white witch is walking with him. And then there's everybody's waiting to see what's going to come of this negotiation inside of the tent. And as a short time later, as they're all awaiting the news, Aslan speaks. She has renounced her claim on the sons of Adam's blood. And as the people begin to rejoice, the witch asks Aslan, how can I know your promise will be kept? And he responds in a ferocious roar. Lucy, the little sister, Edmund's sister, is rejoicing and she looks at Aslan with a smile and then immediately realizes something is amiss. Something is not right. What Lucy does not know is that this moment is the cost, at, for the cost of Edmund's freedom, Aslan will actually lay down his life on the stone tablet in his place. What a powerful, powerful story that's giving us the beautiful story of the gospel as it's being lived out. And here we're remembering the price that was paid for Edmund's freedom. And actually it's the price that's paid for all of our freedom. Because all of us have failed to keep God's laws. We've all succumbed to the temptation of the enemy. We've all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. And so it's required that our lives be given and taken because we have violated the law of Almighty God. But yet, the good news is that Jesus Christ paid this ultimate sacrifice. He paid the price on our behalf. And and so I want to look tonight at one of the great prophetic announcements in the Bible, written 700 years before Jesus ever came to this earth, and it's found in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, one of the most beautiful texts of Scripture. And it's telling us of the ultimate price paid for our freedom. And the question this chapter is answering is, why did Jesus really have to die? And I believe that Jesus dies, and there's kind of two immediately responses that come to my mind. And the first reason is that we are enslaved by a power so great that only death can release us. And the power of sin always causes death, and only the giving of a life can actually release us from that power. You know, von Gogh, the German poet and dramatist, once said, none of us are more hopeless, hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. 
Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, most of the people in our culture, if you ask them, you know, they'll say we're not slaves to anything. But the reality is people are slaves to sin. And we're slaves to addictions. We're slaves to our sinful propensities. And that's the reality. And I don't, don't let anybody try to fool you. You know, people are not walking in freedom today. There's a lot of, underneath, a lot of despair and hurt and heartache and brokenness that's happening inside of people's lives. And he's pointing out here, the, the people that are in the greatest, most difficult state are those that think everything's okay. When in reality they're not. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews reminds us of the very nature of sin. He says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And that is the very nature of sin. It's self-deception. And how many recognize that a lot of times we think we're okay, but other people can look at our lives and go, man, you got issues there. You know, but we think we're fine. We can't see it, but other people are seeing it. And so the nature of sin is to suck us in, to deceive us, to delude us, to think that we're okay when we're not. And the the sad part is it's affecting our our own sense of well-being. It's affecting our relationships with other people, but we think we're okay. You know, and a lot of people are living in a great state of denial that there's even a problem in their life. And yet others can easily see it. And you say, why is that, Pastor? Why is it that sin deceives us? Because we have to live with ourselves. And we've developed amazing rationalizations and self-justifications for our behavior. And it's amazing how merciful we are to ourselves and how impatient and intolerant we are towards other people. Isn't that amazing? You know, we can live with our faults, but we can't live with the faults of others. Isn't that incredible? And that's so often what happens in our lives. You know, this freedom though, needs to be maintained when we have it, when we secure the spiritual freedom. It's interesting that people, no matter in what spectrum of the political scale, make these incredible statements. If you're a person who's really on the left side of the equation, you can hear what Desmond Tutu has to say, and he says, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. In other words, to maintain freedom, we have to be aware it's possible we can lose it. We can actually lose the freedom that has been secured for us. We can lose it in a spiritual realm, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. We can lose it in a political realm, and I'm going to mention that tonight as well. If we are not vigilant, we can lose the freedoms that have been secured for us at incredible cost because we have been careless, indifferent, and apathetic. And that's very important we understand that. You say, well, I'm not really on the left side of the spectrum, Pastor, but I'll give you somebody on the right side of the spectrum. You know, the, Margaret Thatcher, she says this, the price of freedom is still and always will be eternal vigilance. So she says a few extra things, but they're saying the same thing, are they not? They're saying, yes, we have to be vigilant. We have to be alert. We have to understand we cannot take freedom for granted. And yet, how many say we do? Isn't that true? We actually take our spiritual freedom for granted. I think we take our political freedom for granted. And unless it's threatened, we don't even realize. And sometimes even when it's threatened, we don't even realize we're on the cusp of losing it. You know, it's certainly true in the political realm. I want to paint a picture for you. Think back early in the 20th century, 1920s. You know, Germany was a country 
going through, it was a democracy, first of all. It was going through a terrible time. They had come out of World War I. They had lost that war. There was severe uh, recrimination against them. They were paying back huge wartime debt to the nations that had conquered them. They were living in hyperinflation. Some of you might have seen reels. I remember when I was in school, we'd show reels of people bringing wheelbarrows to stores because they didn't know how much things would cost. The, the, the inflation was so dramatic that with Within hours, the price of goods were changing. Can you imagine, you know, that kind of spiraling inflation? You know, we can't even relate to that. See, we think everything is going to be measured at a lower price. But what happens is when there's shortages, then, you know, in the, in the economy, it, everything becomes more expensive. That's how prices are driven up, because there's a lack of. There's shortages. And this was time uh, of a great dearth in the land. There was great famine all over the world. And Germany was experiencing this. And how many know that you're susceptible in times like this to somebody that's going to bring hope into your situation? And so in the 1920s, a leader arose who spoke to the German people. His name was Adolf Hitler. Now, you and I, in hindsight, can look back in history and say, wow, I cannot believe that he became their leader. But think about it. They were in a democracy, and he was promising them a different and better life. Isn't that interesting? And they elected him as their prime minister. And within the course of 10 years, he transformed the country economically. It was a great transformation. They were literally out of their despair, their economic despair. He built a lot of nationalism inside of the country, gave the people self-respect, but he also, you know, spoke to a lot of issues in their life. He did a lot of blaming of people. He especially blamed the Jewish people. We know there was a growing anti-Semitism in Germany, right? You know, eventually we find out that the Nazi party had a plan to destroy every Jewish person living on the planet. You go, well, where's that coming from? You know, that's coming from the spirit of Antichrist. And we need to understand that there's a spirit working behind some of these ideologies. And Nazism has a spirit. It's an anti-Christian spirit. And eventually, you know, people that stood up against him were sent to concentration camps. And don't you think it's amazing that in 1938, this is just prior to the Second World War, that Austria, this surrounding nation, had many German-speaking people. They voted to be annexed by Germany. 98% of Austrians voted to embrace Germany. How many think that's kind of an amazing thing? See, you look back in hindsight, you go, did they know what they were doing? And the answer was no, they were deceived. They could see the economic prosperity. They were looking for this amazing answer, and they, they embraced it. But the very next day, because Austria was a Catholic country, and all of the schools, you know, had, were, had many religious people that were teaching in the schools. They had crucifixions on the wall. The very next day after they were annexed, every last crucifixion came off the walls in the classroom, and Hitler's picture was put up in its stead. As a matter of fact, Hitler had a strategy, and his strategy was simply this, that he would actually focus in on the children of Germany and Austria and actually went about taking away parental rights and actually making them children a a ward of the state and began to propagate his ideology into the young, fashionable, moldable minds of children until finally he had a youth movement so strong they were absolutely loyal to Hitler. 
And we know the rest of the story because at the end of World War II, 50 million people had lost their lives. Six million Jews had been, you know, holocaust. They were burnt up. They were cremated. They were destroyed in this incredible purge that was going on. You go, how could such evil happen? People actually embraced it and eventually were overcome by evil. What a tragedy. And the United Nations after that created laws so that a government would never have that kind of authority and power. And they actually made laws so that governments could not take the role of parents and actually supersede and put themselves in the place where parents needed to be. And isn't it tragic that even in this province of Alberta right now, that's exactly what's happened. There's been a law created that the government is actually taking away parental responsibilities and making the, the state having greater authority than parental rights. How many know that's a dangerous thing? We're actually in violation of international law. We don't even realize it. That's what I'm telling you, how subtle freedoms can be eroded. But, you know, some of us made a decision. As a province, we obviously made a decision. This government won a majority government. And you know what? They're continuing to propagate ideas that are, that are actually at the expense of freedom, which is an important concept. Now, that's in the political realm. Let's just t- take a moment and shift now to the spiritual realm. Because as Christians, we can do the very same thing in our own personal lives and in the spiritual realm. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. He's talking about once we've come to Christ and we have been delivered and set free from the power of sin, he says this, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. What's he telling us? Don't do this. He's basically saying, don't let sin be in charge of your life. Now, He cannot say that to a non-believer. Sin is in charge of their lives. And actually, before we were Christians, we were actually in control. We were being controlled by our own evil desires. Sin was actually in the driver's seat in our lives. But now he's saying, as a Christian, you and I can say no to sin. There's a power within us that's greater than our sin. Isn't that an amazing thought? There's a power in our life that's so strong that we can resist sin in our lives. Then he goes on, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. What a powerful statement. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I love this text in the book of Romans. He says, when you and I are obedient to God, we bring blessings to many people. And our disobedience always brings, you know, negative things coming into other people's lives. And I, I always say this, you know, when, when we decide to obey God, we have no idea of the amazing blessings God's going to make your life. You have no idea what God intends for you. Isn't that encouraging? That God can use you way beyond your scope and understanding. As a matter of fact, we always look at ourselves, which is a big mistake, because God likes to take the weak and foolish things of this world to confront and confound the wise and the strong. God can use us. That's what I'm telling you. Don't look at yourself. You know, David didn't look at himself when he came against Goliath. How many know that was a kind of a mismatch, you know? David was a lot smaller than Goliath. David was not equipped the way Goliath was for war. King Saul was freaked out that he went out there. But David says, you come to me with spear and shield. I come to you in the name of the Most High God. How many know when you're coming in the name of the Lord, there's a power in your life. You and I can stand against evil tonight. You can stand against the evil in your own soul tonight. 
That's what Paul is telling us here. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? You know, that's a new theology in our culture today. You know, go ahead and sin. God's grace will cover it. Folks, let me tell you something. If you sin, you become a slave to it. So that's what Paul is arguing here. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And what does he say? By no means. He's saying absolutely not. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves as someone as obedient slaves, you become slaves of the one you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Can I just say something? There's only two masters. You're either serving Christ or you're serving Satan. You're either serving righteousness or you're serving sin. It's a very, there's no option. There's no middle fence. You're either in one camp or the other. We have to decide. We say, Lord, take my life. I yield it to you. I say yes to you. I give myself to you. I want to walk with you. I want to live in obedience today. I want to see what you can do through my life. God says, I can do amazing things. Can you imagine, you know, even if this one congregation, over a thousand people attend this church. Can you imagine if a thousand people decided we're going to be fully committed to God, what would happen? Would transform The whole city, folks. You'd have revival. You're right. It would be so powerful. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, past tense, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Wow, is that ever powerful? Well, the second reason why Jesus had to die, I believe there's a demand for justice and holiness. God gives a satisfactory answer. In other words, God is not only a loving God. We hear that a lot today, but God is also a just God. And I'm so glad he's both. You know, because I always say to people, you know, how many here want justice? Most of us go, not when I'm doing the wrong thing, Pastor. You know, but every one of us in this room would say, when people are ripping me off, when people are violating me, when people are abusing me, when people are doing that to others, we want justice. You know, the only time we want mercy is when we've done something wrong. Isn't that true? God, I want mercy now. But God gives us both. Aren't you glad God is both a loving and a just God? And, I, and I've been sharing, you know, over the last number of years here, and I was preaching from Revelation, I was basically saying God will actually give retribution. In other words, God is going to actually, when people do the wrong thing, eventually they're going to have to pay for it. Or else Christ is going to pay for it for them. I mean, there's one or the other. And it may not happen immediately. But ultimately, there will be justice. And that's what you and I need to know. Let's move on here. The three things that we must consider in the cost of human freedom. The first is the suffering involved. Do you realize for freedom to happen, someone pays a price? There is nothing free on this planet. Let's get that out of our head. If it's free to you, someone else paid for it. Okay? It just means somebody else paid for it. I think a lot of our culture says, let everybody else pay for it. I just want all the freebies. You know, that's part of our meism culture, but it doesn't help us as a culture. We need to realize that there's also a price to maintaining freedom, and that price is vigilance. C.S. Lewis says something very profound. He said it costs God nothing, as far as we know, to create nice things, but to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. 
You know, I can rephrase it this way and say, it, didn't, it wasn't hard for God to create things. He just spoke and they came into being. But for God to bring about this amazing conversion into the lives and bring redemption into our lives, redemption for our world and redemption for us as human beings, he had to lay down his life. Redemption is extremely costly. That's what Lewis is telling us here. What's even more tragic, that is God's love expressed in his sacrifice is rejected by so many. Look at how Isaiah describes this rejection in verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows with, and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It's interesting that John picks up on this theme in his gospel. He said he was in the world, speaking of Christ, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Isn't that true that the world today does not recognize Christ? They don't. And then it says, and he came to that which was his own. He came to the Jewish people. He came to the covenant people. He came as the Messiah, and what happened? They didn't receive him. It's sad. Yes, some did, but really the majority did not do that. And that's why Isaiah says, who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Do you realize tonight that if you're a child of God, something very precious has happened to you? God's Spirit has opened your heart and revealed Christ to you. That is an amazing gift. Do, you know, you not, should be continuously marveling. Why, you know, Glenn was here last week. Pastor Glenn was speaking. Why would God pick you and me? Why should he pick us? Why should he reveal himself to us? That's amazing. We should be, we should be in awe of that. God, why? I'm so amazed. You could have left me. You had no obligation to save any one of us in this room. But he has. Amazing love. Amazing love. You know, even at the end of his ministry, after all the things that Jesus did, isn't it amazing some of the things he did? I mean, he raised the dead. He fed the multitudes. It says here, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. I mean, you think about it. How many people are walking around raising the dead? You know? Or how about, you know, he's out here and there's 5,000 people. He takes a little boy's lunch and he's able to multiply the food and feed 5,000 men plus women and children. No wonder they said, we want you to be the leader. You know, how many people would elect somebody like that? No more taxes. We'll just make sure everything you have is given to you. No wonder they wanted Jesus as their leader. Isn't that amazing? Of course, but they still didn't believe in him, it says. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. See, now John is saying this text in Isaiah 53 is now being applied and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what's happening, he says. One of the great difficulties the Jewish had in overcoming their prejudice against Christ was his background. Do you realize that? goes on to say in Isaiah 53 too, it says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Isn't that interesting? There was nothing outwardly about Jesus in the flesh that would draw you to him. It's fascinating. As a matter of fact, everything about him was interesting. A root speaks of origins. Here the root came out of dry ground. In other words, a very difficult circumstance and beginning. You know, time and distance has helped us to remake the first Christmas into some sort of a nostalgic and romantic story, but the reality was far different. It really was. We've, we've, we've kind of pumped it up, right? Made it, a, you know, the little nativity scene. It's kind of sweet, but that's really not the story at all. Ray Balky reminds us of that 
when he says that Jesus was actually a Palestinian refugee. As a matter of fact, Jesus was an Asian-born baby who became an African refugee. Remember, he fled to Egypt. As a matter of fact, he says, half the babies in the world are born in Asia, and Jesus happened to be one of them. And half of the 18 million migrants in the world are Africans, and Jesus knows that experience because he was a migrant. He fled to Egypt. Jesus was was born in a borrowed barn, buried in a borrowed grave, was homeless most of his life, and the authentic gospel has enormous power for the whole world when we tell it the way it really is. Isaiah says there was nothing about Jesus' earthly life that would draw him, draw people to him. Jesus actually grew up in an obscure town named Nazareth. You know, if you, th- you want to know how bad it was, when you study the purity laws in Israel, what you're going to discover is the closer you are to the temple, the holier and more pure you are. It's all about proximity. It's really interesting. That's why it's called the holy temple, the holiest of holies, the holy temple. Jerusalem's what? The holy city. You know, And the people in Judea felt like they were more holy than the people in Galilee. How many knew that the Galileans were considered, hey, those are the country bumpkins. Those guys have, you know, who are they anyways, right? And then you get to Nazareth. Well, Nazareth had its own reputation. As a matter of fact, we read in John's gospel that when Philip found Nathanael and told him, hey, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, he's the Messiah. Listen to Nathanael's remarks. Nazareth? Can any good thing come from there? You know? Well, today, Nazareth's a big city in Israel. But in Jesus' day, it was a little hamlet. There was very little going on there. As a matter of fact, our tour guide said, in that day, many of the uh, people lived in caves. It was so poor. I mean, it was like the wrong side of the tracks, if we can say it that way. Isn't isn't it fascinating that God often uses the obscure, the weak, you know, the things that everybody else dismisses? And then they looked at Jesus and they couldn't believe what he was talking about. As a matter of fact, we know the story. He was born of a virgin, but you can imagine how that story went over. Uh Uh-huh, right. You know, and there was word circulating in Jesus' time that Mary had a fling with a Roman soldier, you know? So when Jesus is teaching, they said, hey, at least we're not illegitimate children like you are, Jesus. Are you catching on? How many are catching on? This is, you know, Jesus, there's not a lot in the natural to bring you to him. As a matter of fact, they were amazed and said, how can this man get such learning without having any PhD? You know, right? Come on now. You can see it. You know, where did you get this learning? As a matter of fact, they were amazed at what Jesus said because he spoke with authority and Jesus actually was unpacking the scriptures and people were realizing what he's talking about. That's the way it really is. You can imagine the kind of jealousy he was fomenting there. And there was really no outward appeal. As I said, Isaiah said he grew up like a tender shoot, like a dry root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract him. I remember when I was in Bible college and I had a little Jewish lady. She was our teacher. And she was teaching on the tabernacle. And I'll never forget this. Because, you know, she would, when she started talking about Jesus, she'd just start crying. She was just so in love with him. It was kind of fun to be around her. She's a good, neat lady. Just loved her. She's a great teacher. And uh, I remember her teaching one day, and she was explaining to us. She said, you know, the tabernacle was covered with skins. Outwardly, there was nothing attractive about the tabernacle. But the moment you went inside, the fine linen, the gold, the brass, 
you know, all of the, all of the beautiful furniture inside the tabernacle. She says, isn't that what Christianity is like? When you're on the outside looking in, all you see is this mass of skins. There's nothing about Christianity that's attractive. But the moment you come to Christ and you come inside, you go, man, look at the beauty. Look at the love. Look at, look at the incredible insight. It's so amazing. Is it not? Let me move on to the second thing we need to consider. Is the substitution involved? You know, the old theologians talked about a vicarious death. You go, what's that mean, Pastor? It means that Christ's sacrifice has power even in the 21st century. It, there's a vicariousness. In other words, it, it makes good. It's able, it has the power to still transform lives. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus' death to, over 2,000 years ago still changes lives. I love that. It's vicarious. It has power. It has an effect in our lives. Here in our text, Isaiah tells us Christ's death was for a reason. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. So why was Jesus afflicted by God? How could Jesus, who was pure and righteous, suffer such a degrading and humiliating death? And then we have it in the very next verse, the reason. He says in verse 5, but he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions. In other words, it wasn't because of him, it was because of us. He was crushed for our inequities. Inequities and sins are synonymous terms, right? The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It's a substitutionary death. Isn't that amazing? Jesus died in our place. Jesus died for us. Jesus became our substitute. When you and I should have died, Jesus stepped in and took our punishment. What an amazing thing. You know, it's interesting how lightly we regard sin in our world today. You know, Carl Messenger Mettinger was a psychiatrist. He wrote a book in 1973. It was entitled, Whatever Became a Sin. Really fascinating. It's a psychiatrist. You know, you know, there's a difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Psychologists, they get training for counseling. Psychiatrists are medical doctors that have to study the brain and how it works. And that's why they're the only ones that can give prescriptions because they, they're the only ones that, are, that have that training for that. Here's Mettinger, and this is what he says in his book. The very word sin has gradually dropped out of our vocabulary. The word along with the notion. We talk today about mistakes, weaknesses, inherent tendencies, faults, and even errors, but we do not face the fact of sin. As a matter of fact, Phyllis McGintley, who is a noted American writer and poet, says, you know, people are no longer sinful. They're only immature, underprivileged, or frightened, or more particularly sick. So we've relabeled what sin is in our world. We don't talk about people being sinful today. We talk about people having a sickness. Or we talk about a person experiencing dysfunction. And we talk about a person who's never had the opportunity, been underprivileged. And what we're really doing, folks, we think we're being kind. We think we're being nice to people. Here's the problem with it. None of us take responsibility for our actions anymore. We're all victims. It's not my fault. It's my parents. It's my teacher. It's, this, it's the, the generation ahead of us. I grew up in the wrong understanding of life. I mean, on and on we go. We just blame everybody else for our problems. And when we do that, we live as a victim. We live in self-pity. And we never get better. But the day we finally stop saying it's, you know, it's like that old African spiritual. It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. The moment I say, you know what? Mike, it's not you, it's me. It's not what you did, it's what I did. 
you know, I can't blame my father for my sins. I have to take responsibility. Oh, yeah, he may not have showed me the right way, but you know what? After a certain stage in life, I have to take ownership. I, got, I can't say, you know, I have a temper because I'm Irish or, you know, I, you know, I'm cheap because I'm Scottish. I mean, it's amazing how we blame things. Isn't that the truth? Come on now. We've got to stop doing that stuff. That's all nonsense, folks. We need to stand up and say, Almighty God, I have tendencies that are wrong, and I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I need to be forgiven, and I need to be delivered. I need to experience the power of your grace in my life. I need an overcoming power. I need something greater than my sin. I need something to break the addictions in my life. And I want to declare to you tonight, there is a power that's so great, it can set us free from our sins. And when we own up to it and stop acknowledging that it's somebody else's problem, then we can get free. I love what William Newell wrote, an old hymn. He said, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Wow. Look at the price of sin. Look what it cost the Father. He gave up his beloved Son for us. Look what it cost the son. He had to leave heaven and his relationship with his father and the Holy Spirit and die for us. Look at what sin costs those around us. It always affects other people. My sin affects other people's lives. One of the great lies that people have is my sin hurts no one else. That's not true. Because you're not the person God designed you to be. There are people that will never come to Christ because of your disobedience. It says, because of one man's obedience, many became righteous. Now, I know it's speaking of Christ, but when I'm in Christ and I obey Christ, many people are going to be blessed. Isn't that great? You know, I thought about this. Could you imagine if every person just said, you know what, I'm going to give you my life fully, God. I'm going to do everything you ask me to do, and I'm going to let you take me where you want me to go. You know what's going to start happening in your life? God's going to take you to places you never dreamed you'd go. God's going to use your life in a way you never even considered before. You know, I, I so appreciate the church's graciousness to Patty and I when we celebrated our 30th anniversary. And I'll tell you, Kathy, our bookkeeper, made this beautiful book, and a lot of you wrote things, and they're put inside of it, and there's pictures. When I look at where we started from and how it's fragile and insignificant this church seemed, you know, I had no idea that one day there'd be over a 1,000 people here. I had a promise that God said, one day the, the least of you shall become a 1,000. I believed that God was going to do that. But I didn't know how he was going to do it, and I couldn't see it. But God did it. If you would have told me that our church would be blessing people around the world today, back then, 30 years ago, I couldn't see it. But God has done it. Is that amazing? The power of just doing what God tells you to do. And that's true for every one of our lives. You have no idea the blessing that you're bringing into people's lives. And think of a guy named Achan. You know, here's somebody that stole something that was really not his to take, and he buries it in his tent, and his whole family is, is kind of complicit in what's going on. And what happens? His whole family perishes as a result of it. You know, our sin can actually destroy our families. And I've seen it. I've seen people make sinful choices, and I've watched their whole family, as a result, turn away from God and fall into sin, and their whole lives are broken and messed up. You know, I've been a pastor for a long time now, 36 years. I've watched it. You know, I've seen it. And then I've seen other lives who have just faithfully followed God, did the right thing, continued to be faithful, and I've watched the fruit of their lives and the blessings that have come of it. I've watched what happens to their families. It's really beautiful. 
Not, I can't, we can't guarantee these things, but I'm going to tell you, you see, you know, you do the right things and more often than not, you're going to see good fruit from it. You do the wrong things and more often than not, you're going to see the bad thing from it. You can't make guarantees, but you can see it that way. You know, the problem of sin, well, first of all, it's universal. Everybody sins. And we all know that. We've got to stop saying, well, I'm just, a, I'm human. Like, it's an excuse to sin. No, we're human and we're sinners, but, there, but there's a Savior to deliver us from it. Yes, we know that we're like sheep. We know we've all gone astray. But the problem with sin is that it alienates and destroys relationships. And we need to understand that. We've all gone our own way. We've, we, you know, we've all done our own thing. And the Lord has laid on Christ our sin. The problem with sin is that it's about our will, our self-will against God's will. And I love what Augustine wrote. Free will without God's grace and the Holy Ghost can do nothing but sin. And so here's our culture going, I want to be free. But what they're screaming is, I want to be free to sin. And I'm going, really? All you're asking for is bondage. You know what I would be crying out? I want to be free from sin so I can really be free. Amen? There's a big difference, folks. As a matter of fact, the only way to deal with sin is to stop blaming and start accepting responsibility. I love what Proverbs 28, 13 says, but he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Let me move on to the last point. It's the satisfaction involved. The cost of human freedom. There's suffering, we see the substitution and finally the satisfaction. You go, what, what do you mean satisfaction? Well, the problem with sin is that it has to be addressed. Someone has to pay the penalty. The old theologians called it the satisfaction. In other words, God's just law demands satisfaction. Are we catching it? God is a just God. When we sin, there's a consequence. Okay? Somebody has to pay the penalty. That's called satisfaction. So who's going to pay the penalty? Well, you'd think it'd be the guilty part, right? The guilty party should pay the penalty. But what does Jesus do? He takes on the sin of the guilty party, if we'll let him. We have to let him do that. Paul and Paul here, uh, in writing to the Romans, says the wages of sin is death, and yet we see Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. How God's holiness and his love can be met in one act. It's expressed on Calvary. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Think about his trial. What was Jesus, did Jesus try to defend himself and get out of it? He was the innocent sufferer. He was not guilty. He never sat down and said, hey, I'm innocent. He didn't do that. He just kept quiet. It says, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Isn't that true? He was oppressed, and he was falsely accused and falsely judged. He was sentenced unjustly. And who can speak of his descendants? You go, well, what do you mean? Jesus didn't have any descendants. Yes, he did. You see, because of his sacrifice, every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ becomes his descendant. You and I are his offspring. I mean, that's amazing. You and I are his offspring. Jesus said, for the joy that was set before him endured the shame, and he went to the cross. Why? For you and for me. We are the results. That's why he did it. You know, he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. 
and cause him to suffer. And, th- and though the Lord made his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Beautiful way of basically saying, Jesus did this for this result. He did it so that you and I could be set free. It, it's interesting, it says, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, usually when I think of the word intercessor, I think of prayer, don't you? that he's going to intercede on our behalf. But actually, the word here, it means to intervene. It's more than just speaking on our behalf. He's intervening on our behalf. As a matter of fact, the word does not simply mean to pray for those who sin, but rather to put oneself in the place of the transgressors and to absorb the full impact of the punishment due them. In other words, he became between us and judgment. I mean, that's an amazing thing. You know, Paige Kelly says, to intercede, therefore, means to intercede between men and the consequence of sin. He came in between so that you and I would not have to suffer death. He suffered it on our behalf. He stepped in between. He, you know, literally, he took the bullet for us, right? He did. That's what you need to understand. That's what it's talking about here. What satisfies the heart of God was that his Christ, that, that his sacrifice, sorry, was worthwhile. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their inequities. You know why God can justify us? Do you know why God can forgive us? Because he paid the price. You see, this isn't like, oh, you did a crime, you can go free. You did a crime, you can go free. See, there's something unjust about that. Because in our culture today, you know who the real sufferers are? The victims. The victims of the crime today are constantly suffering, and the guilty are going free. There's something wrong with this picture. We've lost a sense of this idea of satisfaction. The reason why God can let us go free is because he suffered in our place. How many are catching on? You see the distinct difference between what our culture is doing and what Christ did? It's quite significant. He's he's, he's, He's actually fulfilling the obligation of the law. So we see that the cost of freedom comes with great suffering. How many see that? It comes with great suffering. And so what do we need to do? We need to maintain that freedom. I need to maintain that freedom in my Christian life, in my spiritual life. How do I do that? By not succumbing to sin. There is a power inside of us that's greater than our sin. We can yield to that power. The power of God's Spirit living inside of us that can say no to sin. Isn't that great? Let's stop making excuses for ourselves. Say, Lord, I may be weak, but you're strong. You're living inside of me. Hey, you can deal with this stuff. Your, your ability inside of me is greater than my sin. Amen? Come on now. Think about that. There's a power inside of you greater than your sin. You're a Christian today. You have a power inside of you greater than your sin. You know? You know, some people say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of all the terrible things. You know, my daughter is working on a place where there's a lot of spiritual activity going on. A lot of it's negative. I sat down with her last night. You know what I said to her? I said, listen, I want to tell you something right now. I don't care. The strongest, the most evil person can stand in front of you, and you're greater than that. I'm going to tell you why. Because you know who's living inside of you? The one who created the universe. The one who created this universe lives inside of you. How many say that's pretty amazing? Do we ever think about it? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Think about it for a minute. I've got the creator living inside of me. I have the redeemer living inside of me. There's a power inside of me greater than my sin. Wow. 
I just have to say no to it. I just have to appeal to Christ, my intercessor. I just need to ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill me. I can pray every day, Lord, fill me with the Holy Ghost and power. Amen? Lord, you can fill me with joy this morning. Lord, I can leave my house full of the Holy Ghost and power. I can be a terror to every demon in the city of Red Deer. Woo! You know, look out. Jesus and I are coming to work this morning. Yahoo! You know, come on now. It's an attitude, folks. You got to see it rightly. You know, people are going, you know, there's something about you. It's a little disquieting. You know, yeah, I know I'm bringing my friend to work with me this morning. Who's your friend? His name is Jesus. Wow, you'll get people excited. I can guarantee you. Right? All right. Oh, let me tell you a story in closing. And it's so sad. Here's this security guard. It was in 1996. He talked a junior high girl, 14 years old, to run away from home, not tell her folks, and then kept her captive for 10 years. And every day he told her, you're stupid, you're immature, and nobody loves you like I do. And he did that. Day after day. And meanwhile, I don't know where the mother was in the story because I just heard about the father. The father, every day, was so distraught. He lost his daughter. She was a missing child. Put it on the milk cartons. You know how they do that? You know, I was searching for his daughter. Every day. Crying out to God. Lord, help me find my daughter. Eventually, this guy felt like he had brainwashed this girl so much that eventually he gave her some freedom. She eventually went to, a, you know, went to a store and she befriended this deli guy, an old, old man that was working behind the deli counter, and she finally confided who she really was. He happened to have a friend who was a police officer, and he told the story. And so they apprehended the secu- this guy that was a security guard. 38-year-old guy pulled a stunt. They apprehended him. Of course, you know, that's, that's a crime, what he was doing, and rightfully so. And he should be punished for that. And eventually the daughter was restored to the father. And this is what the father said. He said, it was exactly 10 years, one month and 11 days. And there was not one day that went by that I'd not think of my daughter. Not one day. I want you to know something. That's how the father sees you and I. Every day, he thinks about us. Is this powerful? Your father and my father loves us so much. He thinks about us every single day. And you know, we have, a, we have an adversary called Satan. And every day he's telling us we're junk, we're useless, we're worthless, we have no value, we're defeated, we're broken. And he's telling us every single day. And yet the father is telling us those are all lies. You are deeply loved by me. I have suffered in your place. I have brought freedom to you. You and I can live in this freedom. Is that powerful? You and I can live in this freedom. I believe that you and I have a responsibility. Not only is it a great privilege to be free, we have a responsibility to maintain this freedom. And I don't think it just extends in the spiritual life. I think it moves right into our everyday lives. And it even extends into the political sphere. 
as Christians, we cannot just let, you know, evil run rampant in our land. The only way to deal with evil, I'm going to tell you right now, is to stand up to it. You say, well, I'm not courageous, Pastor. None of us are. But I'll tell you one thing. With Christ in me, we can stand up to any giant. Amen? Amen. We need to stand up, folks. And we need to stand. You know, we sing this beautiful hymn. I, you know, I was shocked today. I didn't know O Canada started out as a hymn. Maybe some of you knew that. I didn't know it. That was enlightening to me. And that just tells me we're losing some of the most profound history we have in our nation. You know, we have scriptures etched on the walls of our parliament. Do you guys realize? I've been there. I've seen it. Etched in the walls of our parliament. Don't let the enemy win in our land. We are the hope of this nation. The believer. Let's stand tonight. As we close the service in prayer tonight, I believe God's Spirit has been speaking into our hearts. I believe God's been breathing a word of encouragement and hope to us. Amen? There's a power inside of us. There's a love that's so compelling. There's a love that's calling us. There's a love that's challenging us tonight to be courageous, to stand up in our own personal lives, to overcome sin, but also to stand for our nation and to stand for what's righteous and not to succumb to what's evil. Amen? You know, I think we have a responsibility in a democracy. You know, I think it's a sin when I'm a Christian and I don't vote. I believe that's a sin. What I'm saying is these young men, thinking back to, you know, D-Day in Normandy, running through a hail of bullets, laying down their lives so I could have the privilege of living in this freedom, and I don't take advantage of it, and I'm not maintaining it, that's a sin. Because I'm telling them, you died in vain. You know what? I think we got to get off our duff as Christians. Amen? Come on now. We need to start understanding what is happening in our land. We cannot make excuses. Well, I don't know any better, Pastor. There are so many great agencies out there doing all the work for us to explain to us what in the world's going on. So, you know, they can tell you, this is what's happening. And this is what's happening. We need to be aware. It's our responsibility to be aware and then to do something about it. Take responsibility for freedom. Amen? So just with every head bowed tonight, how many here, God's Spirit has been speaking to you. Maybe it's in the spiritual realm. Maybe it's in the you know natural, political realm. God's been speaking to your heart tonight and saying to you, you know what, I want you to take more responsibility. Just That's you. Raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you right now. Just raise your hand. Say, you know what, I'm going to be more responsible, Pastor. I'm not going to sit back and, you know, just let things happen. I'm going, to, I'm going to step up to the plate. I'm going to step up to the plate in my spiritual life. I'm going to step up to the plate in my political life. You know, I want our church to be active. I want God to say to some of you, I'm choosing you to be a leader. I'm going to have you run for office over here. I'm going to have you take responsibility to begin to serve other people. It's not about you being a powerful person. It's about you being a servant of the Most High God to serve other people. And I shared in the second service, in the first service, I said, you know what? Part of growing up is to move away from life being about me. That's immaturity. It's about as Jesus. He's, he didn't come to, to, to uh, be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom. You want to grow up? 
give your life away. That's right. Serve other people. You're going to find out that you're going to be happier. It's not going to be about you anymore. I think a lot of miserable people are because they're so self-centered. That's why they're so unhappy. You want to you want to become a happy person? You got to die to yourself. You got to say, "Lord, I'm here to serve other people. Help me to do that." Well, and you're going to find great joy in it. It's going to bring great blessing in your life. It's going to bring great blessing to other people. That's awesome. My prayer for us tonight, of the congregation, that you people are going to be great in the land. You're going to be mighty in the land because you're going to be strong in the land and you're going to take this responsibility to heart. You're going to stand up and do the right things. Amen. You're going to speak the truth, not in a vicious, mean way, but you're going to speak the truth in love. You're not going to let people run you over. You're going to just stand up and say, hey, that's not right. You know what? You're going to be courageous because God has given you moral courage. And I want to pray for us tonight. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters tonight. I thank you for each one of us. I thank you for what you've done for us. Open our hearts tonight. Fill us with your spirit, oh God. Help us, Lord, to have the power of the living Christ ruling and reigning in our lives, Lord. Give us ears to hear your voice challenging us to be obedient to your divine call in our life. Help us not to be indifferent. Help us not to be apathetic, but help us to be vigilant. Help us to be engaged. Help us, Lord, to be diligent and help us to serve you well in our generation, O God. Help us to be obedient to the calling that you're giving each and every one of us because our obedience is going to bring blessing to people around us. Help us to understand that. Help us to realize that we're difference makers and we're going to help shape our nation, oh God. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.